0: Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I am a bit more relaxed because I am just back from a two-week staycation. This is my first time sitting at the computer desk in quite a few days. Um, I've had some good pockets of, of kind of tech Sabbath days. And this is an experiment that I was trying to run during my vacation. Um, I explored or experimented with, with doing one or two days of a complete screen break or a complete Sabbath from screens, um, throughout the staycation. And I am actually very impressed by the results. I feel internally calmer than I have in a long time, even, even with say going on a meditation retreat, there's something about pulling back from screens or dialing down one's exposure to screens that, um, seems to really, pacify any agitation in the nervous system. So um, this relates to the conversation I'm sharing with you today on the podcast. Um, it, today's guest is a friend of mine, Elisa Malinverni from Switzerland. She's a Swiss yoga teacher, specializes in yin yoga. And um, a couple of years ago, going back, maybe a year or two back, she wrote a wonderful book called Yoga for Recovering Addicts. And this book is a series of interviews she conducted with a whole variety of practitioners across different traditions, um, and 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 she's really looking at how uh, yogis, contemplatives, have used their practice as a way to um, overcome sort of debilitating addictions in some form, and I'm sharing my bit here about smartphones, because I would say for me, I think if I were to, in my own audit of my own <laughs> inventory of um, excessive grasping, I would say my smartphone is, occupies a central place there where I, I find myself grasping for it, looking for things, um, texting friends or whatever, as a way to fill space and, and avoid something else. So um, she and I speak about... Uh, smartphone addiction, for one, in this episode, but we also explore kind of the, the, the nefarious manifestations of the grasping mind and how the grasping mind is really the root cause, as described in Buddhism, of, of discontent and dukkha. Um, and, and around that theme, we look at perfectionism as a kind of grasping, a, a, an unrealistic form of grasping that, that just generates a tremendous amount of suffering And one version of that suffering is what people often speak to of as imposter syndrome. So um, those are some of the themes that uh, Lisa and I will be exploring in this conversation. It was great to have her back on the show. And if you are interested in the themes that we're exploring in this conversation and want to dive more deeply, I highly recommend her book, again, Yoga for Recovering Addicts. There's a link for you and how you can get it from Amazon in the show notes. And, um... With that said, I'm going to just say I'll I'll have more updates about the fall season in terms of the classes Terry and I are teaching and the the new yin yoga qi cultivation training that we're going to be running in October um, called Refining Metal, the Wisdom of Qi Qi Cultivation. Um, More will be coming about that soon. And so I just want to say it's great to be back. And I hope you enjoy this first conversation of the new season with Elisa, where we discuss imposters, smartphones, and other various addictions. Today, I am with Elisa Melonverni. Elisa, welcome back on the podcast. How are you doing? Thank
1: you. Thank you. I'm good. Just got back. Yesterday, I just got back from my summer vacation, summer vacation slash teaching retreat, but all good. I'm very rested.
0: Oh, Great. Great. (laughs) So um, just to, to introduce you, you've uh, towards the end of last year, at some point last year, you wrote a, a great book called Yoga for Recovering Addicts, Stories of Hope and Ways of Self-Healing. Um, and we recorded, we taped one episode that published last year. And mm-hmm. then towards the end of last year, we recorded the second episode, which due to my sort of negligence and disorganization got lost. And I apologize to you. I was uh, <laughs> saving you didn't it.
1: have to tell everybody. <laughs> <okay>. No, no, You <laughs> I mean, had to be transparent
0: about these foibles. I,
1: right, I, had,
0: right. I had I had I in every intention of publishing it uh, early in the year. And basically when this year started, just uh, there was a one thing kept happening after the next. And I got derailed in my own schedule. And by the mm. time I got around to trying to get it published, I realized that it had been deleted from the archive and zoom. And I was, as they say, SOL shit out of luck. Um, so I, <laughs> a, a, an apology to you and a thank you for coming back. Cause I do want to, um, continue our conversation that we had about what you've been writing about and thinking about and practicing. Um, and just to tee us off, um, we've identified a few things from the book that we might topics we might get into specifically mm-hmm. issues of codependency, um, how and when yoga or yoga type practices can be maybe the cure or part of the problem with addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And we both flagged our relationship to our smartphone as something I think we've, we've done, we've run some interesting experiments on. I've, you know, I've, I've tried to do a, a downshift to a flip phone. It sounds like you had a, a a week experiment yourself in that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, we can talk about our, our smartphones, but to tee us up, In preparation for this, actually, it was after one of our conversations, uh, and a song came to me—a song, not that I wrote, but a
1: a song (laughs) by
0: a song by the integral rock folk singer named Stuart Davis. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but Stuart was part of the integral movement, tied loosely or closely connected to Ken Wilber, um, and Mm -hmm. and about twenty years ago, around the time. I was in graduate school for acupuncture, and around the time I was starting to go on silent meditation retreats, a mutual friend, a friend that I had was friends with Stuart. I got introduced to Stuart's music, and Stuart has this comedic, spiritual, satirical lens on lots of things in spirituality, and there was one song in particular that came back to me called Only Changing Drugs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just wanted to, like, in in reviewing your book again, I, the, the song keeps coming back to me. And I just wanted to share uh, some of the lyrics from the song because I think it, it it sets up some of the themes in our conversation that we'd like to have. So the lyrics go something like this. He says, I had my stomach pumped two times my senior year, which mm-hmm. earned the approbation of all my plastered peers. <laughs> now I do my weekly bleeding at trendy AA meetings, I was a <laughs> I was a social monster, and now I serve my sponsor. I choke out cliche confessions. I suck down coffee black. I chain smoke cigarettes between handfuls of Prozac. Man,
2: oh I, <laughs> this
0: is the <a, laughs> satire part. Man, I am one sober stallion. I just got my first medallion. My, how, my higher power drugged me. I'm late, letting strangers hug me. And it goes on like that, but it, it's sort of like it, the, the refrain, the chorus is dependency is still coursing through my veins. I'm mm-hmm. only changing drugs. And, you know, just in, in reading through the stories and some of your, you know, it's the, the 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 stories that you share, the, the kind of character studies or the um, living examples of yogis and practitioners wrestling with all variety of addiction, um, the theme that kept coming back I, I, and I, I heard you, you touch on this note throughout the book is, and, and I heard you posing questions to yourself, your, your interviewees, but where is the practice itself becoming a replacement for the addiction and, and, and just sort of channeling the same energy. Um, and, and what I like about your book and I'll, I'll pass it over to you in a sec, but what I like about your book is the, as we covered the first time is the nuanced way that you, explore all of this without really kind of drawing any like specific conclusion itself like you're not saying this is the way to look at it or this is the right way to see it but you're you're creating kind of a kaleidoscopic lens of multiple perceptions on this addictive dynamic Um, and and I think you're rightly flagging ways that the the very tools we want to use to help us overcome an addiction can can quite easily become part of the addictive mindset. So that's how I just wanted to tee you up and to see <laughs> you know where you are at now with with um uh just the topic of yoga and recovery
1: Well first of all, I really like that you said you appreciated the nuanced way because that's exactly what one book agent told me was problematic <laughs> in terms of sales because, Especially, I guess, the American audience likes uh, mainstream and clear statements like here's the formula and those are the three bullet points. And that's specifically not something I wanted to do. Like there is no one right answer. There is no ultimate truth as Buddhists know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was exactly my motivation to just present sort of different case studies. But as you very well filtered is that's something i think they all all the stories have in common that um, the tools of yoga or mindfulness are not enough they're not a guarantee in and of themselves they can be conducive to what i think is is key or sort of at the root of the problem or uh, the root of addiction one of the roots of addiction is i think also Denial, uh lying to ourselves, and and these sort of antidote to use a Buddhist word, to that is becoming more honest with ourselves. And that's what I like about, for instance, Alcoholics Anonymous, they make that distinction between a dry drunk and a sober person. And a dry drunk is just someone who's given up drinking. A sober person is someone who's actually investigated um the dynamic of, of their addiction. Um Their blind spots uh, from when they were still drinking or using, and I think that's something that yoga and uh, mindfulness can can sort of enable more self reflection. But then there's like that other element, like what's you need that wherewithal, you need that readiness, and maybe also that mental flexibility to really turn a spotlight around and, and look at yourself and. That's why I'm so fascinated with those rock bottom experiences, because there seems to be something that cracks open in people when they hit rock bottom and suddenly they're like, oh, okay," And, you know, they they see themselves. And like one of my interviewees said, you see you see that whatever you've been trying to do to fix yourself with a substance or with an addictive behavior isn't working, has not worked for you. And you realize that you need to start Working on yourself, doing the inner work.
0: Yeah. So just to underline or reflect that back, the Mm -hmm. the the themes of denial, self-denial about maybe how either what the cause, the underlying causes of of the behavior are, or the behavior itself. You know, those are those can be very much in place, and the tools of yoga and, and mindfulness, ideally are, are lenses or ways in which an individual can become more aware of the underlying energy impulses, behavioral patterns, but often, and I, and I, and I really started to see myself through the case studies that you share in the book. Um, but often the, the new behavioral system called like yoga could be a new behavioral system that someone subscribes to as a way to deal. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, when some of your, the interviewees spoke about, you know, doing their first yoga class and feeling like they were floating down the street afterwards, like they're feeling so light and clear and like the burden of maybe suffocating anxiety was just relieved from, from the practice, which I, I this is, this, this maps to my own experience. I remember this very clearly myself. The first Yeah. Yoga I think
1: we, we can all relate to that.
0: I yeah. Think. The, we, it needs a name. What is that? It's the, the, the come to yoga moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I call it like the sattvic hook. <laughs> Sattva <laughs> is like, you know, the feeling of lightness that the yogic texts and also the Ayurvedic texts sort of describe as the middle path. Like you're not you're not hyper, you're not restless, but you're also not um dull. You're you're in between. And you feel like, like you say, you feel that that lightness, that clarity. And that is entirely positive, but it can become. I guess, depending on how we're wired, but I think for most people, um, especially because I think in our culture, we're either or we're either tired or wired or we're tired, but wired, but we're rarely like centered and grounded, but still feeling that lightness. So I think that's why that also presents such a such a hook for people. Sorry, but I interrupted. No, you're, no, no, you're right. It,
0: you're, that's a great point. And so the The practice, whatever practice people come to and and get hooked on, you could say, um can deliver that kind of sattvic clarity, not tired, not wired, but clear centeredness. um and then, you know, if, if I trace my own story, like you get into it and then you, you want to really devote yourself to it. you're like you're like i'm 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 on board with this and then suddenly the system has lots of prescriptions. The, of how you really need to do it, say dietary behavior or the number of times and amount that you practice and certain formulations of practice. There's all these formulas, and you you touch on this in the. I know this comes up in the book too, but there there and then there may be a, a teacher of sorts or a, a leader of sorts who kind of embodies the ideal and, and maybe receives a lot of the projection from. Students who who are looking up to the teacher and thinking, okay, this person has some, somehow transcended the, the problem. They're a living beacon of purity.
1: Um, and or also they tell you, they tell you the prescription, they, you know, give you all the information and what you should do to keep feeling like that or feel even more like that.
0: Right. Um, and that, I think it can set up this, dynamic of seeking perfection mm-hmm. um and you know for me dietary practices and yoga were very intimately connected and uh, you know still are but i had a maybe a kind of a wacko per- sense of what was dietarily healthy and i got into excessive successively more or increasingly restrictive dieting to purge my impure body of
1: toxins. <laughs> the toxins were. <laughs> the uh, sounds so familiar. Right. Yeah, but yeah. even that languaging—I mean, yeah—retrospectively, yeah. sounds crazy, right?
0: <laughs> but I—I—I I, I bought it wholesale, and yeah,
1: yeah, we did, we all did.
0: And it—and it's sort of—I forget who it was that I was speaking to once. It said, "It's—it's it's the archetypical story of trying to find yourself, but in trying to find yourself, you ultimately lose yourself." all over the place.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, and it's coming full circle back to the, the issue of acceptance. You know, it, it took me a lot of time in practice, you know, years before I could even come to the accept acceptance of the, the real underlying thing that I was running from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think I, I just liked how your book handles that that side of it, you know that that you that, you're, that you uh, yeah. you name you name that clearly. Um, and also,
1: if I might just add, that too is an ongoing practice. I was just talking to a friend of mine; she's a psychotherapist. She's also featured in the book. Uh, it's actually the first first chapter, um, and and we were both saying how, uh, especially when it comes down to nutritional things eating disorder habits <laughs> we're both still like vulnerable to that like if someone starts talking about you know this regimen that they're following or this thing that they that they've tried I'd rather not hear it because I know I'm very susceptible to that and and it's an eternal like coming back to remembering um that I do have an eating disorder and then I you know, that is a blind spot for me. And whenever I hear or read about intermittent fasting or you name it, it's, it's easy for me to get hooked. And, and that, that honesty that I was mentioning, that self-reflection and that uh, ongoing self-inquiry is, like I said, it's, it's ongoing. Like, it's not like you, you reach that point, you, you know, get the holy grail and, and, you know, you see all your patterns and everything is resolved because you just said, you know, it took you a long time to get to the underlying problem. But once you get to it, once you have that revelation, it's still like ongoing work. And that's why it's helpful to have a practice like yoga or meditation that, you know, sort of provides... A space, maybe a time in your day where you can, like journaling, where you can actually take inventory and see, okay, so today I'm doing good, and today, oh, okay, so this thing that that person mentioned that sort of got me on the wrong foot, and etc. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the, I mean this is it's the underbelly of the yoga industry in a way. The I, I think there's there's fancy new names for it, but like. Some people are throwing around the phrase "the aspirational self," and um, but I think there's something within a lot of yoga systems, uh, alternative wellness systems, or complementary wellness systems that have this under undercurrent, underbelly side of purity, the, the straight and narrow path, um, ideals around what a practitioner will behave like talk like eat like Mm. and 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 it can really feed into pre-existing kind of neuroses around
2: yes control
0: or 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 whatever um so you know i i do there was a book i've read in the interim since we last spoke um by it was, a turn, it was turned, it was turned on to me of a friend of mine who described the author Ernst Ernest Kurtz as the, the, the great historian of AA, the a, Alcoholics Anonymous Movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and this the book I was reading was not the history of it, but it was sort of his reflections about what's going on. And it's called The Spirituality of Imperfection. And mm-hmm. and I just I'm just it was it was an interesting read for me in that. Acceptance of one's imperfection, you know, is very much at the heart of maybe welcoming a higher power in the context of an AA AA language, but accepting that the person who is addicted can't necessarily muscle their way through the addiction by striving harder like there's something Mm -hmm. profound about what you're describing when you mentioned the the rock bottom experience Mm -hmm. like when you can't deny it anymore when you can't posture your way around what's happening or rationalize it that that in the full acceptance of one's imperfection that that is actually kind of the the necessary first step or the necessary condition for, for true transformation or for, for changing.
1: I don't know if it's the necessary first step.
0: Yeah. You can challenge me on that. Sure. Yeah. I'm not, I'm yeah, no, not, no, no, I'm not sure.
1: I'm not sure. When, but certainly uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, kind of, I don't know if they coined the phrase, but they all often use that phrase you can't white knuckle your way through it. Like you can do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. Um, but I think there's different elements that are really helpful, like um, a community, a group, which Alcoholics Anonymous provides. And definitely they have um, that requirement from what I hear. I've never been to a meeting myself because I have addictions, but alcohol, I think is not one of them. <laughs> um, but they they do, yeah, you have to pick a higher power Um, that you then identify with in you know in your hours of darkness Um, and and they also I mean at least in the U.S. there's in in larger cities there's meetings I think every hour of every day and that also gives you structure and um, as you may notice (laughs) the the points I've just mentioned and I think they're could be more yoga covers a lot of those bases like yoga gives you if you practice at a studio it gives you a community gives you structure because you can you know most studios have classes every day so you can go every day and it gives you what i like about yoga is that it gives you sort of a spirituality but it it it's not necessarily um it, it, there's, there's no theological aspect yet you don't have to pick a hindu deity to identify with um and i think a lot of people resonate with that with just having a spiritual resource i think that phrase is from carl Jung, um without you know it being god or allah or without it being related or tied to a theistic religion and Another thing I like about yoga mindfulness practices is that, is that, um, it's not that abstract concept, but that there are moments when you can, I mean, for me, when you actually experience that higher power or whatever we want to call it, you know, energy or, or higher self or that, you know, intuition, inner voice that speaks through you or comes through you, um, and maybe that's easier for people in our culture to relate to because I think we have some sort of we've developed some of us, many of us have developed a certain amount of skepticism towards um theistic religions. Um so yeah, I I don't know, like I certainly resonate with that. Um with you know the connection to a spiritual higher, higher power being um extremely helpful um also because i think you can then ask for guidance um you're not you don't no longer feel like you have to find answers to all of your questions by yourself Mm, yeah and that's another fine balance
0: yeah (laughs) you know one of the things that i was thinking of when you were just speaking there about how a yoga class, someone going to yo- a yoga studio or developing a yoga practice, that that can be a very strong support for a, a spiritual connection, right? For, to, mm-hmm. to, 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 uh, somewhat of a self-styled higher power. Like you don't have to absorb a theistic higher power from any specific tradition, but you can, uh, a, a self-styled version of a higher power that you can connect with. And, I think that's very important. And the question I wonder uh, that raises raises for me is that, and again, I haven't been to an AA meeting either. Um, so I'm, I'm just reading about it, but thinking about it more from an anthropological perspective, there's something about the group sharing and, and Kurtz calls it kind of a spirituality of imperfection support group where in people sharing their story, you know, there's, living breathing examples of of humility and and imperfection which every member can start to identify with in a certain way that they can identify with someone else's struggle and that can in a way normalize um and help hold them hold i think their own what they're what they're wrestling with themselves and and that's that's something i didn't necessarily get in yoga and I wonder what you mm-hmm. think about that. Like, you know, cause I, I felt like I would show up and like, it, it wasn't such a social scene. It wasn't an interpersonal scene as much. It was more me going to a class, working with a specific teacher, trying to look like I knew what I was doing
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, mm-hmm. Um, and both within the class and then also trying to look like I knew what I was doing after the class or outside of the class. But um I guess what I'm getting at is like a normal yoga class doesn't have that, that shared circle off. Like Mm -hmm. it might happen on retreat more, Um, Mm -hmm. but that's where I do think in terms of recovery support, that the community or a a support group, a practice support group um, was missing for me. Um, I find it I've actually sort of self-created it now with the the Sangha that I formed and when we have our meditations that's really just time afterwards to talk about what we're all working with. And I, I feel like there's a, a give and take of um shared struggles and and, and shared challenges of, of life and practice. And and so I'm trying to model it more after this after this idea of a spirituality of recovery or, or a spirituality of imperfection support group. Um and that also lets you know way i think about it it lets me the quote-unquote facilitator also be more clear and transparent around my own struggles and so there's less hierarchy there's less the like projection of well he's got it because he's the teacher he he hasn't had these problems like it, it it's um i think it's I, there's a there, there are these traps in the yoga industry of thinking that somebody has it all together just because they're up there teaching and and um I wonder if you see any changes in that or what, what your thoughts on that are.
1: If I see any changes in that, wow. <laughs> maybe um, maybe no, not but changes, first... but
0: just the dynamic itself where like, yeah. you know, you could uh, basically I'm trying to describe is how a person could go to yoga and, and get some benefit for what they, what they're working with or holding. But it, the, the issue of it being kind of a solitary endeavor like it's mm-hmm. self-styled high-level higher power and it's a solitary endeavor in a certain sense even though you're doing it with a group um it doesn't have that 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 kind of support meeting group function
1: forever. yeah yeah no i totally agree with you and i wanted to say something about um the way aa works and or about you know sharing circles in general i also work a lot with sharing circles in my retreats and my trainings that's become a maybe even the more, most important feature of everything yeah. that I do, because I think the experience that people make, especially addicts who are often very stigmatized. Um, so the addicts feel um, a, a lot of time, they feel like imposters, even when they've stopped using or drinking because they feel, oh, so if people know, if people, you know, meet the real me, if people know about my history, yeah, um, They will think less of me. They will exclude me. They will shun me. And the experience that we make time and again in sharing circles is that we share. We're completely honest, radically honest. And the experience we make is that we remain in the circle so we're not shunned even though we've been honest about ourselves we're still accepted we're still included and to me that is a key reparative experience regardless of whether you're an addict or not because we've all made that experience you know as children as teenagers as adults that if we we come clean if we are just honest about who we are about how we feel that we will experience rejection and that's why I think the experience of sharing the circle is so, so incredibly healing because then we experience it actually makes us more connected. It makes us more part of the community. That's why I think sharing circles are fantastic. And, and the yoga scene. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, I I try to work very hard against it. I try to be like, even when people come in for the first time. I really work hard at being at being welcoming, you know, just with small things, giving them orientation, making them feel like they're already part of the group. Like just because someone has been coming with me for 10 years, they're not they don't get any, (laughs) um, I don't know, preferential treatment. And um, yeah, as much as I can, I try to work with with sharing. And I think actually now that I think of it, I think that's one of the reasons or probably one of the reasons, I can't speak for you, why we both gravitated towards yin yoga, because yin yoga was a lot like that from the beginning. It was never about what you can do or how long you can be in the pose. It was very much, it was always about um, the experience, about, yeah, more like a meditative process or or a transformational process that's very interior, that's not showy or spectacular. Um. And as you know, in yin yoga classes, the teacher gets to talk a lot. So, yeah, I kind of try to sprinkle that in. Whatever I say is always like, is also a little bit psychologically therapeutic. Like, I always try and make a point that, you know, this is not about striving. It's not about perfection. I do that in my regular, in my young classes as well. But obviously, there's less time. And because it's more like, even just, you know, from a literal perspective, Standpoint, like you, you're looking up sometimes in a young class. And in a young class, you're usually either looking at your belly button or straight at the floor or straight at the ceiling. So there's not even, because there's less like visual experience, there's not even that trap of comparing so much of seeing other people, seeing what other people can do, and feeling like, oh, yes, I should be able to touch my toes and, well, the problem is to circle back to your question is i think it's hard because we come from this uh, achievement driven perfectionist society i think most of us has been have been told and taught as children um you know if you're if you're good at this uh you will gain acceptance. If you have good grades, then we will love you. It's all like, it's always like a quid pro quo. And obviously we bring that mindset to yoga. What could be more natural or less natural? And um, yeah, and I see that very much as the role of, of of the facilitator to kind of take the competitive element out as much as possible and cultivate that element of community. But like you just said, I mean, it takes someone who's um, courageous enough to present themselves as not on a pedestal Mm -hmm. um, and as, you know, one uh, one of many. For me, I also, for instance, and that's just a tiny little thing, but I never set the room up in a way that I'm in front and everybody is, you know, in front of me, across from me in rows. Like, I always either try to have a circle or me at the center and Matt's pointing towards me so that it's more like circular and not me as the leader and everybody else at the followers. And I mean, that's a tiny little thing, but I find that energetically that sends a different message Mm -hmm. and it makes us, you know, kind of like all in the same boat. And I often say that just because I am the one talking right now doesn't mean that I'm, you know, or maybe I have a, tiny bit more experience at teaching but it doesn't mean that i know more than you or that i have more wisdom and i think yeah being being as authentic as possible about that with people goes a long way and i think basically it's inclusivity right like mm-hmm. that feeling we're all in the same boat and yeah. we're all just paddling through high water <laughs>
0: I think we, um, I, I, I talked about some of my struggles with alcohol last time. Um, mm-hmm. and just to review briefly, like with that substance that kind of started to choke me or strangle me a little, um, deep mystical or deep uh, kind of psilocybin psychedelic experience or several of them actually were part of what loosened up that grip on me. Um, and so so I'm just mentioning that to put it aside because I, what I want to talk about is this, like this, the, the addiction that I've been wrestling with, with my technology, namely my smartphone. Um, and I know you, you mentioned that you had your own experiment with that because this is, this is a segue from being, we can be authentic and transparent around this, but I also, I'm just flagging my alcohol problem. So people don't like to cook. Oh, well, if he's only talking about his addiction to smartphone, he doesn't know anything about addiction or he hasn't, you know, I, I'm like, I know what it's like to be addicted to substances. I mean, I'm addicted to coffee still like coffee, caffeine. Is, I'm still very much addicted to caffeine um, in a certain sense, because if I didn't get it, I would probably not be articulate at all right now. <laughs> um, but the smartphone thing, I think, I mean, it, it it intersects with so many other issues in the environment and what's going on sociologically, collectively. Um, and I have had, I've been aware since it was invented or when it hit the mass market, and I got my first one that this is a this is a very potent delivery system of dopamine. And
1: mm-hmm. um, you had that you had that feeling right when the first smartphone came out.
0: I was aware of it, just like wanting to Like you
1: knew, you knew from the know, because I was very, I was caught very unaware. Mm. I was not aware that I was like purchasing my next
0: go-to drug. Oh, I didn't know when I bought it that I was going to get so hooked, Um, Uh but I knew early on in possessing it, you know, and it, but the, the roots of it go back further. I mean, I remember in high school, you know, growing up in the age when telephones were still connected to the wall with a cord. Uh, and and I remember I, I was just a gabby kid. I love to talk on the to phone. friends with on, the phone. My, on the friends with my friends on the phone or girls on the phone. And like yeah. I would remember that long course. And parents
1: would be like, and I'm doing call.
2: Cool.
0: Did anyone uh, call? Did you get a call? Wait while you're talking to so and so. so and that's just and part of that wanting just to talk and be connected. So there's that fundamental kind of human urge to be connected and and to not feel alone so the, the cell phone really presented this like constant way to connect and 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 feel validated through connection but i want to just hear you mentioned that you had an experiment with your own smartphone and then i wanted to like see what that was like and 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 and, and talk about what you're noticing And we can cross share notes maybe about it
1: yeah so as you just mentioned, like I, I haven't even had a phase in my life when uh, alcohol became problematic. So, uh, a strong struggle with imposter syndrome while I wrote the book and after I published it is, is that, like, same here. I, I, I'm slightly addicted to caffeine. I'm addicted to my smartphone, but I don't have a strong substance addiction.
0: Actually, can I just pause you, hold you, sure. hold you on that topic for a second? Yeah. Imposter syndrome has come up in. With with students a lot, people are talking about it more and more. um, It's a phrase I never would have come to my own. I just felt like I just like I'm just not there yet. It's why I would see it like I'm just I'm not there. But um, you know, in writing the book, and what was what was imposter syndrome like? flesh it out I guess is what I'm asking it's like what did what did, what, what was that Ooh. like and, and like what did,
1: many what, many many. so imposter syndrome just you know to um maybe, yeah I should have clarified for you listeners is um feeling like an imposter in terms of usually in terms of competence like you you like like in my example you write a book and all you can think about is oh like the next minute people are going to find out that I'm completely ignorant that I don't know what I'm talking about that English is not my native language. People are going to find out and they're going to laugh at me. Like The fear is basically of, of, of ridicule, of being discovered, being found out is totally incompetent. Um, and that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Uh, I think personally, my hypothesis is also that's because we live in a society that, as you and I already mentioned, is so perfectionist, has such high standards um, of performance. And while I was writing the book, um, yeah, it was, I'd say it was mostly those two elements because a lot of, there's a lot of addiction literature out there uh, in terms of memoirs, in terms of strategies for addicts, like do this type of yoga for your recovery and do this type of meditation for your recovery. And everybody usually writes from a place, Ah, Ralph De La Rosa, I don't know if you know him, he's... um, Um, I think Vipassana teacher in New York and also a um, family systems psychotherapist anyway he used to be an addict he used to you know live in the streets in Manhattan and and he writes from that experience like he's like been clean for a very long time or also one of my interviewees Josh Korda who's one of the leading teachers for the Dharma Punks movements movement in New York. He's a meditation teacher and he used to be he's a, he in his 20s, he was uh as he phrases it, addicted to every drug drug on the planet. And they all write from that place that gives them precisely a lot of street credibility. Whereas when I write about addiction, I was afraid that people would say, oh come on. So she's addicted to her smartphone. She's addicted to Netflix. Like how life-threatening is that? So that was my fear that I wouldn't be yeah, credible enough, but, um, and then also English is not my native language, and I was writing a book in English, and I was like, oh, people are going to know, people are going to know, I'm going to make mistakes, people are going to know that I'm not a native speaker, and so on, so those were, I guess, the main two elements, and that is something that addicts um, suffer from a lot, because they're usually, um, Michael Hastings, one of my interviewees, talks about that in his chapter, she says, like, there's usually a point, usually, five to six years in, into your sobriety, when addicts have a life that looks good on paper, maybe they have found a good job, maybe they're in a relationship, um, they have a hobby, like everything is going well. And they feel like, but it's only because people don't know that I have that past. It's only, people only treat me you know, respectfully because they don't know. So there's again this imposter syndrome of knowing, of thinking, oh, if only people knew how broken I still feel inside. Um, and that can lead to a lot of obviously, you know, from self-doubt down to huge depression or or anxiety. And uh it's a big thing in our yeah, society. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm
0: glad you tied it back to the perfectionism part because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the it's the, I, as I've been thinking through it, it's, you can't have imposter syndrome if part of you, correct me if I'm wrong, see how this resonates with you. But when I've been thinking about it myself, I can't have imposter syndrome if part of me doesn't think I should be top-notch perfect.
1: I absolutely agree. And then, yeah, of course. And,
0: and then, so there's the shame of not being perfect that, perpetuates or fuels all this kind of energy yeah. of, of trying to live up and and posture and look right and da, 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 versus I'm an imperfect form here and it's yeah. the way it is or
1: even just say you know like if we want to get it back to the experience of writing a book it might not be you know a Pulitzer but I still invested five years of my life I did a lot of research I conducted a lot of interviews like someone without an imposter syndrome would have said, I, that's the best I can do. I did my best. And, you know, it it might not be brilliant, but it's certainly good enough. Like that would be kind of like the healthy antidote to imposter syndrome, but that's, you know, not how most of us were raised and um, taught. So yeah, I think that's what happens to most of us.
0: Yeah. No, thank you for getting into it. I mean, it, cause it, for me, it, it also speaks to a, a fragility of self that I think mm-hmm. everybody has to a certain degree. That, yeah. that, that we're we're fragile because we rely on a reflection back from somebody else or a group or a whatever. We refli- we rely on our reflection back to validate who we feel we should be or are. And um, so there isn't that core sense of safety with. Being who you real, who you authentically are or mm-hmm. internally are, um, and that that can push it's just and
1: it's.
0: I think whether you're writing a book or you know teaching a yoga, static, yoga
1: class,
0: teaching a yoga class, or just for a practitioner. I mean, there's a number of practitioners that I know that are, you know that. Um, in my view when i listen to their practice when i listen to how they they're thinking sincere it was like real sensitivity and 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 sincerity about their practice and then they keep coming up with this coming against this wall of feeling like an imposter it's like what's there's something about the way everything's getting framed that that it's setting up these ideals of 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 unrealistic perfection mm-hmm.
1: um and it actually reminds me of something that you used to say to us in in trainings and um in in the seat of the teacher it's it's so important to kind of give people good information, right? And I remember once you said, during a workshop, you said to us, don't go to war with thoughts. You were talking about meditation. And that really stuck with me because that happens so often in meditation that we have that image, like again, that perfectionist image. Our mind needs to be that clear space or the the famous image. I don't know if it's from Zen or where, like the clear surface of the water, no ripples. And if you tell that to a Westerner, they're immediately going to go, I must not think, must not think. Oh, I had a thought again. Oh, I'm terrible. I suck at this. And you go into the narrative of I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. And yeah, as a teacher, I think that also brings us back to the whole idea of, you know, how you build your community and the sharing circle, blah, blah, blah. If we can be transparent about this is not about reaching perfection. This is just about, you know, falling and getting up again, practicing and trying and trial and error. If we can just change the languaging around it, because I think a lot of times, you know, we, we hear like that snippet of information, like this is the way you must do it. And if you fall short, then it's worth nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I don't want to get too, uh, I want to come back to the smartphone. I'm, I'm really glad we spoke about it. But I you totally also, I, I, what you just <laughs> said there reminded me of some of the, the, the case studies I read through just this morning um, uh, about I mean, there, there's you have you what's so it, it, really from an anthropological perspective, it's very interesting reading because the, the the case studies, the characters that you uh showcase and platform, um, really do have a wide range of perspective, wide range of practice, wide range of experience, wide range of different kinds of addictions, different mm-hmm. relationship to stuff. And some people really go seem to go down the the ultra hardcore path. And yeah. and even perpetuate you know promulgate that hardcore path which to me is just a setup but um it's, it was interesting to read but so thank you for the 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 the, the digression into um, imposter syndrome um I hope that's of helped to some people but come back to the let's come back to the smartphone. The smart
1: thing yeah oh my my experience right so yeah this is something because you know i'm constantly (laughs) scanning my life (laughs) for addictive behavior and um yeah like uh, my smartphone definitely is one major addictive behavior that i have and it's also so hard to i mean it's so many things in one right it's your alarm clock it's a camera it's um your calendar it's 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 both like it's
0: you know just a tool as you,
1: for work yeah
0: just as, sorry Trump but just as you said that there's so many things in one I was thinking the exact same thought but my sentence was there's so many addictions bundled into
1: one oh that that yeah. too of course of <laughs> <Right>? course <laughs> yeah um and so it's it's really hard to um like I mentioned to you before before we started recording um I was uh, part of um, an experiment, uh, for our daily paper here in Berlin, Switzerland. And they asked me to go one week without smartphone. They gave me a flip phone and I was allowed to use WhatsApp on my computer because, you know, a lot of signups for yoga classes happen through WhatsApp. And I just, I just told them from the beginning, um, yeah, I just need to be able to communicate with people. Can I do it on my computer? And they said like, fine. And it's incredible. Um, like I told you before, like that week felt like a yoga retreat. It felt like a meditation retreat because I was so present, just not having that phone with me and not, not even not seeing it, but really knowing that it wasn't there. And even when I was communicating through WhatsApp, I was always doing it on my computer. And then I would, you know, shut down my computer or flip the laptop closed and leave and go somewhere else. And, like the, I I wasn't aware of the amount of micro interruptions in my day and how, I think you mentioned before, every micro interruption is a little burst of dopamine and dopamine has like this burst. And then there's like a downer, like it's, it's, which works very much like stimulant drugs. Like when you no longer have the effect, you want it again, you want more. And, um, yeah, it was it was it was almost to the point of scary like how clear my mind felt how present I was with my family with my students um also I don't know what you do but I play music from my iPhone in class mm-hmm. or even I know you don't do that and which is very smart you don't time the yin poses on your smartphone right you have a separate clock
0: yeah well uh, i only well, you used a, to do that um, no, right i i um i mean I was aware enough i was aware enough to know that if I brought out my smartphone in class to do anything that at some point it was gonna be obvious that I was ruled by it. <laughs> Like gotta be, you know, <laughs> someone was going to catch me checking my email and Shavasana. Someone was going to, you know, there's something like that was going to happen. I, I, but I even was just, if
1: you don't, even if you don't do that, the fact that the, the phone is present, it changes something about your presence.
0: Absolutely. No, I, I, yeah, no, I, I used a, uh, some sort of analog timer, like a yes, a, a digital watch that, that vibrates. Very smart.
1: But just bottom line of my experience um, is life is so much more fun when you really like Or even just, you know, the times I had to pick up my daughter and it was just waiting. I was just waiting in a street, looking at the trees. And before it would have just been scroll, 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 scroll. Yeah, it was was an incredible experience. And it was also scary. I was already pretty disciplined with my smartphone, like the first hour or two of the day. Like I get up, I meditate, um, do some reading. And then usually after the rest of my family gets up and has breakfast, I take the first peek at my smartphone. That's usually like 90 minutes into my day. And I also thought I had a pretty good sleep hygiene. Like usually by 9, 15 p.m., I just put my smartphone away. And still that week without my smartphone was a revelation. Although I feel like I had already put up boundaries mm-hmm. with my smartphone and with the like that just that constant availability, because that's what you are. You're constantly available to people, and you also want to be available to people because we mistake that for love, actually.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, someone's
1: been looking for me. Someone's been texting me. Oh my God, someone's called.
0: Love validation. I exist. Yes. Um, I'm I'm people I, remember. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not I'm not disappearing into irrelevancy kind yeah. of um yeah
1: so so what's your experience? And I'm very interested because you now you live like in the middle of nature, right?
0: Yeah, yep.
1: And I always have the illusion that it would be different if I wasn't living in a city. <laughs> I would be different with my smartphone, but go ahead, take away that illusion for yeah, no, well, um, my question, I guess
0: well, before I come to myself about it, I am I, did so you did a week and then go ahead. You, yeah. And you and you did they where was your phone during that week? Did you have it to hand was, them in?
1: No, no, it was um in a drawer, um switched off, I guess, or maybe just on I don't know. But I I didn't I didn't take it out one single time. Like I can be very if I put my mind to something, I can yep. be very disciplined. Yeah.
0: Well, and I don't want—I don't Pardon want to dis, discount the fact that you're participating in something like an experiment run by your local paper. Mm-hmm. So conceivably, there are other people doing it. So you know you're part of a cohort that's all in it together, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So there's an accountability. Uh, there
1: was no contact between the participants, um, just with the reporter who did the interviews with us. Uh, I've actually I've done it again this summer. Well, I always kind of do it in the summer because we go to a place in the mountains where there's there is reception, but there's no um there's no electricity, so you can't charge your phone. So you switch it off. And I switched it on just every two days because you know my parents, they're not old. I literally I'll just to, you know, check in with my parents if everything was okay uh, at home. Um, but yeah, so I've had a similar experience again this summer, uh, but obviously it's easier when you're somewhere on vacation in nature, like I said, um, it's, it's easier to do when you don't have to be available for, you know, work issues, um, and so on. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's, this is,
1: um,
0: I'm trying to think of how to introduce it. But my... I plan
1: to do it regularly, like every three months or so. I'd like to do a few days or a week of cell phone detox.
0: Cell phone detox, yeah. And I what I'm trying to figure out is the the right sweet spot of use and like code of use, really. It's like a code of conduct of how like an agreement I have with myself that sets it up so that it's being used uh in a in a way that avails myself of the benefit of it. And there are many benefits, mm-hmm. which I learned I cannot live without, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is uh, what? Can I ask? I'm well, okay. So let me, I'll, I'll get to that when I <laughs>
1: <that's> my... <laughs> We're so, still not there. <laughs> so, so,
0: the, so the experiment was inspired because, two, I'll just, I can point to two things. One, I remember reading a, an author I like who said that in an interview, he said he could not read a book if his smartphone was in sight. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who, he mm-hmm. writes very big and important books. And he probably reads a lot. And, and, you know, I, I appreciate and, and value good reading and I want to have focus and clarity of attention when I read. And I have noticed that my ability to read has just degraded immeasurably from where it used to be. I mean, and and this is where you and I, I, I think we're roughly close to the same age. Like or you might be a little younger I'm than 41. me. I'm 41. Okay, you're you're actually nine years younger, maybe.
1: Oh wow, seriously. But
0: but we're somewhere we're of this. Well, I'm a bit grayer. <laughs> <laughs> but we have at least I remember, you know, you know, a growing up without these, going through the what a gift I can see now. What a gift it was to be able to go through grade school and university without a cell phone.
1: And learn to use an encyclope- encyclopedia encyclopedia.
0: Yeah, <laughs> or go to the library to look something up, or and just yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but also to the the more mundane issue that you described of when you didn't have your cell phone, just you're at a bus stop, you're outside, and or you're at the grocery store and there, you're in a line, and you're, there's nothing to shove your face into. You just have to sort of be with yourself, mm-hmm. experience boredom, mm-hmm. which I think you know people are boredom deprived now in a certain sense, you know, Absolutely. or solitude solitude deprived. So there was that side of it, and then um, I read an article, a few articles actually, about teenagers in Brooklyn, sort of hip mm-hmm. teenagers in Brooklyn, who were forming a, a kind of a social group, um, loosely formatted after like an, a, a, a movement of ludditism, <laughs> where they were going back to flip phones. They're getting together and playing board games, or you know, just reading books and poetry, and and just being social together without. In, with intentionally without the, the the screen um and i thought to myself okay very teen, cool teenagers and are doing it in brooklyn i can do it here in maine and that brings me to your point like yeah i imagine too that if i could just get out of the city get out of the 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 franticness of my running around to teach all over the place which stopped in the pandemic you know, I I don't need that level of connectivity anymore. And then when I moved to Maine and into nature more, that I would, I, I thought I would see a natural, a, a shift. <laughs> yeah, a natural shift, a natural uh, dis- downsize in my use of it. Uh, and it wasn't, it took me a while to realize that like that wasn't happening,
2: <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: Um, so anyway, I, the experiment I did was to try to do the flip phone too, but I didn't have like a newspaper, uh, project guide, to, to <laughs> motivating follow. you. Right. I, I went to the, Terry and I went to the, um, the, the cell phone store and I told Did she clerk, do it too. No, No, she, she no. knew she couldn't do it. Um, because primarily because of her connectivity with her sons, you
2: know, mm-hmm.
0: the way she, with her sons in college, it's important for her to be able to communicate through messaging apps and things. Um, I downshifted to a to a sm- to a a flip phone and was running this hybrid experiment where I had the flip phone for phone calls, mm-hmm. but I kept my iPhone on Wi-Fi so that I could use messaging apps with friends in Europe or my bank app for doing... Oh,
1: yeah, the bank app. Yeah, that was bank, tricky. Banking apps. And some things I really like you can't do. Like I realized during that week, I told my husband... Can you pay this bill for me? Because I cannot use my e banking without the verification on my smartphone. So basically, we're screwed. <laughs> well, no, that, that, and
0: that was actually part of the ultimate thing I realized was that the the verifications, two step yep. verifications, yes. getting access, the security issues. Like, I was I did two months of trying to do it, um, even G, having GPS, not having GPS to drive with, and I took. Yeah. <laughs> I, I shared this with my sangha that I uh, I it was a. A friend was in Maine at his old lake house, and I went up to visit him. But I had to get directions. I had to print out written directions off Google Maps, mm-hmm. print them out, and then follow them by resetting my odometer at every turn. And it was mm-hmm. the most stressful drive, two hour drive I had. And as long as I can remember, and the, and the thought of doing this to go back to visit somebody in Boston, which is a town I know, a city I know, but I've just become. St- What's the, uh, accustomed to relying on yeah, GPS yeah, yeah. to the point that I, I don't know if I could function without it. Um, so but it was. But
1: there, too. It's like with your meditation timer, right? You could just get an extra.
0: Right. And then it becomes to, getting all these extra dongles and extra things. Yeah. To, to, to but that's pop. what
1: it used to be like. Like we used to have right. a camera. We used to have an alarm clock. We used to have a paper calendar. We used to have all these things. And now. And especially, I don't know the pandemic has accelerated this, but I noticed that because I remember up until the pandemic, I used to, whenever I took a train, and you know how it is in Switzerland, like you go to the station and I used to get a ticket, like a paper printed ticket. And I no longer do that. So now I'm used to rushing there at the very last minute. And I'm glad that I have the app to get my ticket. And yeah, but like so many things, I feel like so many things. Just over the last couple or three years, have, have downsized even more. Like everything is on our phones now. Right. Our music. We used to have CDs. Remember?
0: I, I do. Music's I, on I, our
1: phone.
0: Well, that's we another whole maps. topic. You know, I, 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 there's there is the the question that you're raising there around what gets lost when everything becomes smushed into the smartphone. Like the digital, yeah. digi- the digitization of music is really. It, it, there's no way of avoiding it, in my opinion. At least I can't avoid it. But I lament the loss of CDs and records and tapes. And no, I, especially I really do, records, yeah. Yeah, I do re- miss that. But you know, so basically, my my experiment was a failure. I realized that after two months, I couldn't function. But can just getting... I
1: ask how did you how do you feel around it? Like, did you also feel that you were more like? We said like when you were in a situation of, you know, waiting at a supermarket or waiting. Yeah. Well, I suppose you don't use public transportation that much in Maine. No, but so, but
0: <laughs> no, but I can I can speak to those conditions where, like, let's say I'm in. I'm in I what was
1: to, a positive I, aspect of the experience? Yeah,
0: going to town and going to a cafe, or getting groceries, or going for a walk at the beach, or going for even walk in the woods, or whatever, like. The positive aspect was in driving even driving on routes I knew
2: mm-hmm.
0: I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved like I loved I felt lighter, like you're it's like that retreat experience you're describing and I just felt like my mind was um just like freed from that imp- that that itch of an impulse to check. Yes. which, which is just, it's like, it, it it's, it's sort of, it's buzzing there. If it's, if the thing's in sight, it's the, the itch to, bu- the itch to check is buzzing constantly and to have that, like, it's like a fly or mosquito. That's no longer <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in, in my stream of consciousness. um, And, and I could say more about that. Like even just being limited to, in driving, just having to, the only choice of between one or two radio stations, like it's either going to be news like public news or it's gonna be public classical music. And that's all I could listen to, you know, that I could tolerate. And and it was really nice to just only have, have two, choices. two
2: choices.
0: Right. And it's like Fantastic. one or the other. And if yeah. I don't want to just turn the thing off. Um so there's there was there was benefits there. Um so I, I think
1: Can I ask? Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. Can I no, ask another question? Did you feel it did it had an effect on your creativity? Not having the smartphone around so much,
0: yes. Um, so that would so the benefits too are that when, so like I said, the smartphone was still tethered to Wi Fi.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and one of the things I was trying to the, the, where I'm coming to as a sustainable relationship to now is like I realized that to 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 reclaim my attention i need to keep it in do the do, uh, do what i said earlier about the telephone growing up like i need to reconnect the phone to a cord
1: ah okay
0: i had to take the mobile aspect of it out of the equation and so <laughs> leaving the phone now in a corner of the office tethered to the cord or not not tethered if it's not charging has been one solution and i've even finessed even more that i leave my yeah i, I I bought one of those. Have you ever seen these programmable, lockable cookie jars?
1: No, I haven't. I've seen the pictures, but I haven't seen it in real life.
0: Yeah, they're they're like a little fishbowl, like they're like a, a plexiglass, uh, you know, maybe seven, eight inches high, four or five inches wide. A programmable, lockable cookie jar. And uh, I've read about other people wrestling with their addiction to the smartphone this way by putting the phone in there and locking it up for a certain period of time Now that was creating too much anxiety in me me to lock it up because of the two step or the verification system like what if i'm trying to do some banking business and i'm getting i need a code on my phone and now my code's locked for three hours i'm screwed so the 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 happy medium i'm finding now is i leave it in the cookie jar at all times Mm -hmm. unlocked but it's, it's not in a place that's easy to get to. It, it's like to pull out the cookie jar is a step of a behavior that says, okay, I'm I'm intentionally going into this and there's something a little bit shameful about I'm reaching into the cookie jar again. And how long am I going to stand here at the cookie jar looking at this thing? It allows, <laughs> it allows me to check in it's with my f-
1: image of you standing at the cookie jar with your phone. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's, that's the truth. Uh, it's the best system I've found so far for, yeah. for managing the use but to your your question around creativity in general, I've found I've regained not completely, but regained a much greater pleasure to read for reading. Mm-hmm. Um, practice itself, whether it's yoga or meditation, is again it's just that mosquito buzz is 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 sort mm-hmm. of removed, and uh, yeah, I would say overall creativity is is but that is better and i think that also ties to at least a little bit i've read like ties to being able to be like expose myself to boredom which is you know kind of a a a down mode or a not offline but like when, when i'm bored and i'm not plunging into just some sort of stimulation like an article to read or a conversation to text with a friend about uh in the boredom there's a, a way that I, th- I know my brain is able to probably process things that i'm taking in in a different way which does yeah. fu- kind of funnel more creativity i think yeah. it's 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 hard to quantify it qualitatively feels that way but it's i would have a hard time quantifying it
1: yeah yeah i ha- i've had the same experience like i think we do really need need that emptiness to come up with well I don't know whether there are new ideas but I felt exactly the same way like the less distraction the less buzzing fly like you very aptly described it and the more you know things can can come through you <laughs> like yeah and and that was uh, yeah it gave me great joy to discover that because I thought mm, maybe I've gotten like somehow a little bit jaded because there's always a lot going on like I have two kids and I run my own business but then I realized oh no it's just it's just my phone (laughs) that's you know taking away from from my creativity and by the way I've also uh, observed the exact same thing like when my phone is somewhere you know maybe in a different part of the house or in a drawer or just not in my Line of sight. It's much easier to to focus and read a book or to write to do something that actually requires focus, whether that's writing or practicing or, yeah. And what you describe with the cookie jar is actually it's like pure behavioral psychology, and that's a a big part of it. We're coming to addiction, like we've talked about. You know, spiritual aspects and uh, spiritual resources. But um, I do not want to belittle, even though behavioral psychology is it's not as popular as it once was, because it's all about, you know, more like somatic based psychology, uh, psychology connected to mindfulness tools, to family models, et cetera, et cetera. But behavioral psychology can be immensely helpful, like um putting obstacles between you and your drug of choice or uh, visual cues, not having it lying around. That makes a huge difference. There's a book I I highly recommend by James Clear. It's very popular these days and it's called Atomic Habits. And it's mostly about self-improvement. And I mean, I can't get behind everything he says because I don't think we need to make ourselves even more, high performers and high achievers but i think he has a lot of interesting points and tips about you know there's studies like if you have water tanks in an office people drink more and if you have candy bars in an office obviously people consume more sugar because there's just something about the visual cues that makes us like oh yeah i want that and the same goes for our phones
0: yeah it's funny you mentioned atomic habits terry's currently reading that book I've, i've
1: she liking it
0: yeah. She really likes it. I've, I've peeked oh. into it and, and I, I said to her, it looks like, it looks like three books I read smushed together. Um, yeah. There was, there was a book called switch how to change when change is hard. Mm. Uh, that came out maybe 10 plus years ago. Uh, so switch, there was a book called the power of habit um, mm-hmm. by Charles Duhigg. I think that was a good one. Um, but one of the things that I was trying to apply to my own scenario with the phone was, the, just a simple phrase from switch that says what sometimes seems like a person problem is a system problem. And I think James clear picks up on that kind of stuff in, in, in terms of how to design habits. Yes. And the piece that I've always been interested in is just the environmental like the environment itself. How is the environment designed to aid or abet a certain kind of habit? And, uh, you know, for now, it, it it really is working for me. And I, I just, I guess I'm using it as a case study that this, because I, th- I think, you know, my, my working definition is, I think I shared with you last time for addiction is any behavior, repeated, any be- repeated behavior with adverse, adverse consequences, you know, and, and you that still can get, repeat. Yeah. That you still repeat. And so that can yeah. get tricky. Like, when is it, When's it really adverse? When's it been, what's, what's the mm-hmm. pros and con on the equation of it? Um, but I know for myself that, and, and my part, Terry would say that my, I'm not necessarily the easiest person to live with, but I'm, I know I'm significantly less easy to live with if I'm on the phone a lot, because it it does, it amps my anxiety. It, it can amp um, just sort of my a feeling of overwhelm that, that mm. kind, of, kind of makes me a little more prickly. Um, and the times that I've done things like what you're describing of like, either get it under control or take time, break off. I, I know I kind of mellow out a lot more and I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not alone in this in that the, my concern is for really the, the, I don't know what generation we call them now, but the, the, the Did generation you? that Terry's boys grew up in, or they're part mm-hmm. of that where they were kind of given smartphones very i don't know around like 10 years old or so and or some some of their friends got them younger and Mm -hmm. like her boys are doing really well so but i think they're outliers actually the majority Mm -hmm. of their friends and the stories and the studies i read about or hear about the articles i read are pointing to this epidemic Mm -hmm. of anxiety and depression yeah you know that's that is directly correlated with the technological uh tsunami of smartphones to that to into the culture when they were coming of age or growing up. Um and so it's it it really I worry about mm-hmm. the collect like how functional uh and how like it's like almost like we're two different types of humans now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. humans
0: that like I forgot what the, what's the technical word for it. It's like there's the, the the digital natives and then the the people that um, the early adopters, the first generation of adopters, mm-hmm. adopter, but mm-hmm. we, we weren't, we weren't native to it.
1: No, nope, um, we weren't. But the yeah. ones that
0: are native to it, you know, their, their social skills, their interpersonal skills, their yeah. self-soothing skills, it's all of it is bound yeah, up in yeah. this stuff now. And it's, and it, it's really concerning to me. Um, but I think I'm, um, I was inspired by those, 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 <laughs> brooklynites um and i i think it is something that i don't think you know i think people some people are talking about it but it it, it's almost like most people don't even want to think about it really too it's like it's just that's they're so accepting of of that this technology is part and parcel of who they are now and it's just like that would
1: be an interesting and interesting demographic study because obviously in my bubble and probably yours too, like there's a lot of awareness already of how um phones kind of encroach on on our presence. And I also wanted to mention, because you said um, yeah, when you know, in in uh your 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 partnership, um having the cell phone around creates almost like creates problems because it makes you more anxious, makes you more distant. And I, what something I've also noticed. I recently um did an exercise during a training um that I'm taking, I'm not teaching it, and they made us um we were we were partnered up with somebody and this the other person um was asked to to share something, whatever they wanted. And and we were told to first listen for one minute and be really present and then to start counting backwards in steps of 13 from 130 like something we really had to focus on on in our minds and then we did that for like half a minute and then we came back to really listening deeply listening and it was incredible what that did to the other person who didn't know why we took our attention away and like we're like and they could tell from our facial expressions that we were and we didn't even have a phone like they could just tell from our facial expressions that we were somewhere else in our minds and one person actually started crying because it really triggered in her like something like a deep core memory of not being heard as a child and being ignored. And it's, it's incredible what that does to the human psyche. If you just tune out of a conversation, when someone is trying to tell you something about their day or about how they feel. And that really woke me up because, you know, I, countless times I've done that. Like, even just before I got on this call with you, my husband was trying to tell me something, and I was listening to a voice message, and I was like, "I can't listen to you. I'm listening to somebody else." <laughs> and like, yeah, and it, it, like that's hurtful. And um, I think that's, yeah, no, um,
0: yeah, yeah, havoc yeah, yeah,
1: in our relationships. And when that's the culture, I mean, like we still, like you said, very correctly said, we still remember a difference to how it was before. And and some young people, makes me sound old, uh, yeah, digital natives generation disease, um, they might not even remember what it's like to have a conversation or, I mean, I remember we were taught um, when we came to the table, dinner table, like put your phones away. And I've actually specifically told my husbands when we are eating with the kids, we have to start putting our phones away because what example are we setting? But I noticed that, you know, with, and that's not necessarily the younger generation, that this becomes so normal for people to just have their phone on the table during a dinner, even during a date. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly like looking up things and showing each other pictures, which is kind of like nice, trying to, you know, include the other person in an experience and a term you're looking up. But still, like, it's a distraction yeah no uh, you're uh, the, connected somewhere else and not connected to the person or the people in front of you
0: yep 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 the the, the that, that that little vignette you shared about that experiment the the diet experiment
2: mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know
0: I think that that really illustrates it um I mean I can't uh, I shudder to think the number of times that someone's been speaking to me. And I have just like been been nodding along, and then like mm-hmm. I got I just got to look something up, and like yeah, keep going, and like huh, you know, do mm-hmm. that kind of thing. <laughs> and that, and, it, and it is it's so stultifying to the connection; it it kills the connection. People have done it to me, and I know it, it's bad. But that's also one of the weird things about that I noticed about the time that I was moving out and about without the phone on me
2: mm-hmm.
0: is you feel like an alien. Yeah, I felt like I should yeah. say, I felt like an alien. I felt like an alien walking the star, the supermarket, walking, you know, in the coffee shop, whatever. um, you know, you're in line, everybody's staring down. You're just, you're, you're the one, like, you it's almost like you're kind of, <laughs> you're the weirdo who's yeah. standing there, not looking at their phone. And, and, and that's an odd, that's, that's an odd thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but the. You know, one, maybe one other thing I just want to speak to around my own discomfort with it is that. So I mentioned that I, I try to root my phone, anchor it to a specific place in the house, namely upstairs. It's not mobile. <laughs> so know, yeah. Downstairs. I try to keep it free. Like my, my mobile phone is free now. Not, no, not anyone else in the house abides by that policy. Like that's, is a personal policy. So, you know, I have to like, just like I am when I'm out in the grocery store, I'm when I'm at home in the first floor, Terry might pull her phone out. So now son, someone, her son might pull their phone out. And, and seeing them go into it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, it's like, I'm like, oh, I can feel the, I want to check. I want to check. There's the, the, that's a, that's a very interesting thing to notice. Mm-hmm. But then also mm-hmm. just like the, the fact that I have to physically walk upstairs and the number of times that I've, done that just to check you know that like like maybe i don't know a couple times a night or something but it's like it's a very clear thing of like okay i'm now taking this walk and i know what i'm going to do and i'm pulling out of a cookie jar like there's all these things like the behavioral pieces to it that that i want to say almost built in a kind of resistance of shame like i know i'm doing something that's like not that noble right now (laughs) <laughs>
1: you know, and also just, you have to find the thing that's like, just, just too much a hassle, too much yeah. effort. Like for me too, like I've started leaving my laptop upstairs and, you know, like it's just too much like walking out there and checking emails, but I'll do it tomorrow. So yeah, you just have to find what works for you. Mm-hmm. And but I wanted to ask, so you have this cell phone free zone um downstairs, and you don't get mad when other people don't abide, but by that because that's what happens to me. That I like I, you know, I found this new noble rule for me, and I I kind of like get mad. I'm like, get on board, fucking get on board. <laughs> that doesn't happen to you.
0: Um you don't feel I... superior.
1: I don't feel like you need to teach people
0: there's a couple of things there there's the
2: <laughs> okay
0: superiority and and uh the the judgment of condemnation of others doing it
2: mm-hmm. um this I mean my answer was is that how do I say it I
0: I feel like i i one of the things I'm it's an old it's a it's a simple lesson but I'm really trying to internalize it, which is that other people's behavior is other people are not responsible for how I feel. And and that's been a it's a hard lesson. It's one of these things I've like started to see a deeper level of that kind of expectation that I want somebody else to behave so that I feel better or that they're responsible for how I'm feeling. And so i of course i have judgments about it and you could call those judgments of superiority or condemnation or whatever like yeah i have part of me that can chirp a lot of uh sanctimony (laughs) superiority Mm -hmm. Um, but more mostly i'm just trying to work with my you know my side of the street on it which is like okay it doesn't oh, make you're me...
1: such a good practitioner
0: no well, no i'm a I, look, i'm a, I'm <laughs> a client i've been through therapy i've been like i've i've tried yeah. to work through this stuff because it it it, yeah it's
1: but that's another huge part of, of addiction or actually of you know becoming sober or abstinent is taking responsibility for your actions and your emotions
0: yeah yeah so that's i mean it's like could I be around someone drinking, and you know, and I can, I can be around, I can not drink and be around someone drinking, and it's not not a problem for me. And like, I don't, I don't go hang out in bars, but like, you know, if there's a social function, there's, is, so it's, it's, it's in that range where like, I notice how my maybe someone else is taking, losing themselves in drink, and and uh, and I'm not, or um, same but thing you have enough
1: fun- distance,
0: yeah, enough to distance.
1: alcohol. Enough time has passed.
0: Enough time has passed. Whereas
1: with the phone. <laughs> but also there are what I actually also wanted to add about phones, it's kind of like dealing with um an eating disorder or sex addictions. Those are things that have spiraled out of control and have you know morphed into addictions or disorders, but they are also tied to basic needs, like human beings need food, human beings need intimacy. And apparently we need phones <laughs> to stay in this day and age. So the sobriety becomes learning how to to cope or as you described, finding rules and the system and the structure that enables you most of the time to have an awareness around what you're doing. And I think that that, that'll be the future that we have most of the time, maybe 80% of the time in the best case scenario, we have awareness. And then I have days that I totally... Like, I totally relapse and I'm like on Instagram for an hour. And but but I usually then see, oh, it's because you know, this isn't this happened and I'm stressed and I kind of like gave in to this drug of choice. And I think that's a totally okay. Like, I really like what Josh Corda said to me in the interview for my book. If yes, maybe if you're a renunciate you can have the expectation that you're 100% present 24 hours of every day but we are like common pedestrians we're like we're householders we don't have like it's not necessary to put that pressure on yourself to be 100% present to never like have a slip if you have a slip then okay admit to yourself that you had a slip and move on and you know you'll do better
0: yeah no i i love that and i and i i want to underline that that and and just Speak to that too. That the slips happen. I mean, I, even though I have, think I have this good system working now, there are times, just for the record, where the phone mm-hmm. does show up on the first floor of the house. <laughs> you know, my phone, <laughs> my phone does find it walks down, down
1: all by itself. It walks away, <laughs> on
0: all by itself, and it might be when like I'm home all alone for a while. Like Terry might be away for a few nights, and like I got to stay in touch with her and make sure she's a, like. There's like the, 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 I get into my own isolation things, and. Um, mm-hmm. And can justify it um but it, it it is like i like how you just said that that it's 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 maybe having guidelines that, that, that you can channel into but and, and know when you're not in those guidelines and how to recover and repair or re- reset if you need to um yeah. without the the idealism of perfectionism that says well i've because, you know, it's like the one thing that people say, if I miss a day of meditation, like my meditation streak is off, and then I'm, I'm the worst meditator, I'm a bad practitioner. It's like, well, no, you're going to have missed sessions, you're going to have missed days, days off, you're going to slip, everyone slips. And it's not a question of not slipping, it's a question of when you recognize you slipped, how do you, mm. how do you, I think you use the phrase, if you fall down, how do you get back up, Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also like being able to see that that's what meditation is about, or that's what life is about. It's not about, you know, meditation is not about doing it well or doing it right on their time. It's about not losing that observing entity. And, and that's what recovery is. That's what, in my opinion, life is like, of course, that's like, we make mistakes. Like that's, it's not possible to live in a body and, and have relationships without stumbling all the time. Th- yeah. That's fine. That's yeah. yeah, as long as you you know, like th- those people that scare me is are those that I think they're right all the time. <laughs> but yeah, making mistakes it, no longer scares most of the time it doesn't scare.
0: Yeah. As they say in Zen, <laughs> one continuous mistake.
1: <laughs> yes, one continuous mistake. I like that.
0: And you know, it's Sorry. good to maybe to, to wrap up. I know we've been yeah, ch- yeah, chatting yeah, for a while, yeah. so we should probably wrap up. I, I just want to just plug your book again. Um, yes, let's, Yoga for let's Recovering plug. Addicts. Addicts. I, Yoga for Recovering Addicts, Stories of Hope and Ways of Self-Healing. Uh, one thing I- It's I'd,
1: available uh, on Amazon. It's available on, on Amazon. Website.
0: On your website. And I'll have links. Uh, is there one you'd prefer me to 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 point people to?
1: Um actually, you know, if people order from the u s, um it might be easier and more affordable to order through Amazon. But obviously, I make more money if they order directly with me. So okay. whatever people, you know, to feel like <laughs> sure, <laughs> they want to sure. support me specifically as an author, um then obviously that's very appreciated.
0: something we didn't get a chance to mention or talk about so much, but I just want to flag it for just because I thought it was very interesting. Um, towards the back of the book, end of the book after, your, after all the case studies after sections of sequences and, and pra- sort of uh, good practices for a person working with, with recovery, uh, you give a kind of historical mm-hmm. scope of the conception of addiction and you know, and tie it to historical developments, which I I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that the first time I looked at the book, but um, I'm currently reading a novel about the Opium War. Ooh. and it's by an Indian author named Amitav Ghosh called *Sea of Poppies*. It's actually a trilogy about the Opium War, um, mm-hmm. but historical fiction, very well done. And it's Ooh, opened my eyes to how little I know fantastic. about the. Yeah, I, it made me realize how little I know about the Opium War, <laughs> Opium mm-hmm. Wars. But the bottom line is, like, the British East India Company was one of the biggest cartels of the history of in the history of cartels, and. Mm-hmm. Um yeah it's uh there's there's many been many as, as I think you're pointing out in the, in the book it, very interesting historical developments that co-arise that both breed and fester addictive potentials in our in our very fragile human psyches and and you know smartphones are just the latest version of that and yeah. I but yeah. but but you you really do a nice job of of presenting all that and in general i just want to say again it's a i i hope you like the word but i it, when i look at the book again it's a kaleidoscopic look at these issues of addiction and it and by that i mean there's just multiple perspectives you're 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 weaving in and out and um i think it allows my hope is that the reader would be able to find themselves somewhere in there um, no, and, and, I, and i know i that's did. much
1: appreciated
0: yeah thank so thank you Thank you. Right. We'll sign off here, but uh, stay tuned. Yes. Stay stay on for a second. I will. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Elisa. I um, I always I really enjoy speaking with her and hearing her perspective on all the, the, the forms of, of practice that we talk about on the show. Um, so I do encourage you to check out her book, Yoga for Recovering Addicts. There's a link for you in the show notes. Um, it really is a, it's one part of, anthropological look and uh, sort of a survey of all sorts of experiences with the grasping mind and how yoga meditation offer holistic tools for overcoming these painful uh, manifestations of grasping. Do check it out and I'd love to hear from you about whatever grasping mind objects or grasping mind dynamics you're aware of. Um, I'll be having more to say about my continued experiments with my own smartphone grasping. Um, So far, basically just turning it off and scheduling when I check things um, and not veering from that seems to be uh, part of the, the essential recipe. But more on that to come and just say, look forward to connecting again soon until the next episode. Stay safe. Take care, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All my best.